All right, well, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read the first 17 verses for our New Testament reading. Before we go to the story of Samson and Delilah in Judges 16. So let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we're going to be considering a very sad, tragic chapter tonight. Um, Lord, we pray that you would please teach us. So you always do, Lord, through these hard portions of Scripture, and help us to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to your people um, in the Scriptures. Help us to see Christ clearly. Help us to love you um, more deeply and um, consistently, and to have our faith built up through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Amen. Let's turn now to Judges 16. We'll read verses 1 through 22. Samson went to Gaza 
and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that no one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most grave scenes in the whole Bible, I think, is the prophetic vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 10, where the the glory cloud that represents the presence of the Lord departs from the Jerusalem temple. So when Solomon first built the temple and dedicated it, Second uh, Chronicles 5 says, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. But in Ezekiel 10, the prophet sees that same glory cloud leaving the temple. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. Out of that temple, doomed very soon to be destroyed by the foreign invading armies of the Babylonians as that act of decisive divine judgment on the unrepentant and persistent high-handed sin of Judah. Why am I talking about Ezekiel? Well, I would suggest that what happens to Israel as a whole in Ezekiel 10, symbolized by that vision of the temple, bears a very close analogy and is perhaps even prefigured in a way. And what happens to Samson at the end of this passage we just read, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. In the nearer horizon, closer in time to um, judges, there's another partial fulfillment of this same principle. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, when um, really very close in chronology and time to this story of Samson, you have the defeat of Israel led by the two sons of Eli, when the ark of God is captured. And when the news comes to Eli's daughter-in-law that the ark has been captured and that her husband has been killed, Eli has died. Remember what she names her son, who was born that day. She names him Ichabod, or Ikavod. The glory has departed. We left Samson last time at a relatively high point, actually, in his life story. Uh, With with Samson, there there aren't a lot of positive moments, but this one was pretty good. Remember how Samson just killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, right? And then afterwards, uh, he was uh, very thirsty after all that exertion, and for once in his life, he actually 
called upon the Lord. He acknowledges that that victory was a great salvation granted ultimately by God, and he expresses his dependence on God, his need for the Lord to provide for him in this great weakness, following so hard on the heels of that great act of strength. And so God splits open the hollow place and brings water out of her Samson, uh, just like Israel in the wilderness, the water from the rock. And um, at the end of chapter 15, then we might... uh, be excused for thinking, well, maybe Samson has changed. Maybe this, maybe things have turned a corner here. Maybe there's going to be this renaissance of godliness and good leadership coming from Samson for the rest of his life. So he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, it says, for 20 years. But very quickly, chapter 16 simply pulls the rug right back out from under our feet. All of those hopes for, real, for lasting change in Samson for all of his strength. Samson is known as that great strong man of the Bible. What he's also known for equally is his very great weakness. This weak, weak, strong man is still very weak in this chapter. For all of his heroism, Samson in this chapter is still acting very much like a villain. And for all of God's mercy and provision and patience towards Samson, Samson continues to be careless and heedless of God. And it proves to be his undoing. So let's look at this very sad passage in three parts tonight. First, Samson's feet, verses 1 through 3. That's F-E-A-T. Second, Samson's failure, verses 4 to 17. And third, Samson's fall, verses 18 to 22. So Samson's feet, F-E-A-T, Samson's failure, and Samson's fall. Um, really, the historian doesn't take uh, his time about giving us that gut punch of what's really going on with Samson. It comes right away in verse 1. If we had any illusion that Samson, after chapter 15, had turned his life around, well, chapter 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. This is, this is wrong on so many levels. Um, there's the, the very basic kind of surface level of just plain sexual ethics, uh, where Samson simply fly, flying in the face of the law of God by going to a prostitute at all. Um, on top, top of that, compounding the problem is the problem we might call uh, uh, covenantal ethics. Um, in particular, Samson, you remember, is supposed to be He's supposed to be Israel's judge fighting for Israel against the Philistines. But just like in chapter 14, which started this whole misadventure in the first place, he is continuing to go around philandering with, of all people, Philistine women in particular. Philistine. Does it repeatedly. It's a great pattern of his life. Now, in this first section of the chapter... It's very obvious that Samson is way out of bounds um, in terms of God's law and his responsibilities as a judge, which makes it all the more surprising the way the historian tells the story. This spectacular feat that he performs in verse 3. I mean, this is really amazing. The Philistine soldiers are waiting for him there at the city gate, and he physically picks up, hoists that city gate on his shoulders and, and carries it uh, miles away. 
Obviously, this would have been very humiliating for the Philistines. Their city gate wrecked. Um, uh, it would have been amazing to, to witness taking place. Um, it's hard to know exactly how to visualize it. That, uh, as usual, the, the biblical text is often sparse on the on on some of the details that we would like to fill in the gaps to imagine what it might have looked like. But there's there's no doubt. What is very clear is there's no doubt. This is a huge and supernatural feat of strength. And the difficulty of verses one through three is to think. Okay, how do these circumstances? come together in the same man at the same time. And what are we to make of this? He's acting, on the one hand, so corruptly and foolishly. And then, another verse later, he's scoring this big win in the general conflict, extended conflict with the Philistines. How does this keep happening? How can someone so bad, honestly, how can someone so bad be doing so much apparent good, be having this kind of apparent success, quote-unquote. Well, of course, the church very frequently has to weigh this sort of thing um, when we evaluate leaders of the church. Um, Helpful distinction that sometimes is made in this for church leadership in particular is the distinction between gifts and graces. So... um, a uh, candidate for a particular ministry position may have uh, great gifts. You know, wow, he's, he's a clear communicator. He's smart. Got a great grasp of doctrine. He's charismatic. People love him. Um, but those are all questions of giftedness, and they are not the most important questions for the church to be asking. They're relevant. They're significant. And those gifts are something to thank God for. See, Samson was a very gifted man. What about graces? In other words, what about godliness? Because that's really what God's people need the most from their leaders. Much more than they need that giftedness. What's true of <clears throat> Christian leadership and church office in particular, though, is really also true of the Christian life as a whole for every one of us. And so I want to bring this down. Think of that really as an illustration I mean, there's specific applications when we're looking for new leaders, but only you think of that as an illustration to turn the spotlight on yourself now. Think about your own life. In your own life, it is so important that you not confuse gifts with graces. Do not confuse your God-given abilities with the real inward strength of your character, your godliness. Um, many of us are inclined to evaluate our Christian lives, on the basis of our performance. What have we accomplished for God? What have we accomplished for God? And by that standard, by that standard alone, Samson would actually come off looking pretty good. What has Samson accomplished for God? Look at the victories he has won. Look at the Philistines he has defeated. He's just lifted up the city gates of Gaza, for crying out loud, as we say in North Carolina. Uh, and he's, he's, he's carried them miles away. So Samson clearly has been given a mighty gift of supernatural strength, empowered by the Spirit of God. It's been very clear. This is a, a, a given by the Holy Spirit, this gift. 
You see, having great gifts is not the same thing as having great godliness. And Samson is a, if not the, prime example of this in the Bible. We all need to take to heart. Carrying off the enemy's front gates, sure. But why was he in that city to begin with? Why was he on the inside of those gates? He never should have been there in the first place. Godliness is not measured by your performance or your achievements. It is measured by Christ-likeness. And you didn't know that in the long run, it is better for you, it is better for your family, it is better for the church, it is better for the kingdom of God for us to be holy, for us to be godly, for us to be Christ-like than it is for us to be impressive. In terms of the visible, measurable impact of our, of our life's work, even our work on behalf of the church, even our work on behalf of the kingdom of God. It's another one of those areas where man looks so often at the outward appearance. The Lord is looking at your heart. He wants you. He wants you. He doesn't need what you can do for him. He wants your heart. Now, in the second section, what I'd like us to see is the way that Samson is gradually worn down by temptation until he ultimately betrays. He ultimately betrays his most basic God-given identity and calling in an act, and this is crucial, of supreme folly. Folly. Verses 4 to 17 are like, they're like watching a train wreck in slow motion. It's coming, and you can see it happening, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. You just want to yell out, Samson, hello, wake up. What is your problem? What in the world are you thinking? This woman has given you every indication, every step of the way, that whatever you say will weaken you, she's going to give that information to your enemies so that they can use it against you. And, of course, you got away with it the first few times because you lied to her. You didn't tell her the truth. But shouldn't it be obvious that if you tell her the truth, she's going to give that information to them too? You think, how could he possibly be that thick-headed not to see where this is going to end up? You see, I think that really is a big part of the point here. It's to show us sin is always, sin is always foolish. It never really makes sense. Sin and folly go hand in hand. Sin presents itself presents itself to us as wise, presents itself to us as the smart thing, the clever thing, the workaround, the the more pleasant thing, the comfortable thing, the sensible thing. Think about the tempter telling Eve, you surely shall not die. Come on, Eve. Did God really say that? These clever ways of twisting the truth makes us question the things we really know are true and makes us think, but is it it really? Disorients us. It distorts reality. It makes things seem other than they are. But in the end, sin makes fools of us. Makes fools of us. And when the dust settles and you wake up and you see things clearly again, you think, that didn't make sense if by God's grace we're given that opportunity to look back and see it clearly. I think it's helpful at this point to to bring up maybe a counterpoint to the story to help us to see uh, what goes wrong here 
by comparing it with an example where there's a character who, who does the right thing. And I'm, I'm thinking here of Joseph um, and Potiphar's wife in Genesis. So that was another foreign forbidden woman. Right? And in that story, Joseph, remember, had every opportunity um, to, to seek pleasure and comfort and companionship and power also uh, through her. In fact, she was pursuing him. She was throwing herself at Joseph. But in response to those advances, what did Joseph do? He literally ran. He, he hightailed it out of the house, um, even though that um, radical commitment to integrity and holiness and loyalty to his master um, gave uh, the opportunity then for her professed love to turn right into hate immediately, get him into that terrible trouble of being falsely accused. And yet you see Joseph so much different from Samson. Say with Samson, it's the opposite at every point from that story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Um, It's not that the temptation has even come to Samson and he just fell into it. He has sought this out. He keeps going and looking for these foreign women. He keeps seeking them out. And and when he's given every opportunity to see what bad news this woman is, how she's demonstrated this track record of betraying him repeatedly to the Philistines, he keeps going back. It's like he he is an addict. And and I don't use that term um, uh, really even metaphorically, much less as as um, humorously. That is what sin does. It addicts us. It hooks us to doing things that we know will destroy us. And yet, it um, so thinly veils that reality behind this veneer of, of pleasure that we see Samson refusing to resist. Although, objectively, looking from the outside, it seems it would not have been hard just to put an end to it all, to just to put an end to it and get himself out of the situation. It's important to notice that the way Delilah gets to Samson is very, very similar to the way Samson's wife um, got him to give her the answer to his riddle back in chapter 14 during their wedding feast. In both cases, um, the ploy is instigated by the Philistines. In chapter 14, it's blackmail. If, if you don't get this out of him, we'll burn your father's house down. Uh, you and your father... For the house with fire. Um, here in chapter 16, it's, it's bribery, so the flip side of the same coin. So we'll give you these huge amounts of money if you do this. Uh, but the method each of those women use is basically the same when it comes right down to it. Verse 16 is just like what his wife did. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed. To death, So powerful is this voice of temptation that it turns reality for him, as it were, inside out and upside down. It makes things seem plausible to him that should not seem plausible to a man of God. See, this is what temptation does. Sin doesn't make sense. It is folly. But temptation's job, temptation's job is to get you not to notice that. It's to make folly seem like wisdom. It's to take death and dress it up to look like life. Makes me think of the woman folly in Proverbs chapter 9. 
She is loud, it says. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Here's the kicker. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is why uh, Hebrews 3.13 warns us against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's why in 1 Corinthians and also in First and Second Timothy, Paul repeatedly uh, gives the same command to flee from sin. Um, sexual immorality in particular, and that's very relevant for Samson, um, and that's one major area of temptation where God's people need to learn this lesson, to flee from sexual immorality. But it really tr- applies to all kinds of sin. This is vital that we learn to flee from temptation, not to treat it with ambivalence or to treat it as something casual, but as a life and death threat. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. You must rule over it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Life or death. Of course, in Samson's case, um, you have to remember, it's not as though he starts sinning when he tells Delilah about his hair, when he finally breaks down and shares the the big secret. Why does he commit that sin? Well, it's because he's been sinning all along. He's already committed himself, in fact, to a path contrary to law of God by being in this relationship with Delilah, this foreign forbidden woman in the first place. What you can also see here is how this is the way sin works also, that one compromise leads to more and more compromises until by the end, what's left? Nothing is left. Samson is betrayed. Uh, Sorry, sorry. Samson has betrayed. Samson has betrayed his God. He's betrayed his covenantal identity. He's betrayed his holy status as a Nazarite. Everything. Everything that makes Samson who he is. He's betrayed it all. Because, all because he could not resist the vexing pressure of this woman that he should never have been with in the first place. No doubt there's a lot more that we could learn about temptation and the way that sin works going into more detail in that middle section, but we're going to go on to the last part, Samson's fall. Delilah knows at the end that she's finally gotten Samson to tell her what he really thinks. We shouldn't take for granted, though, that even Samson, even now, um, is right about what he says that he's correct, that he is correctly interpreting things or correctly expressing things, um, is what Samson tells her about the secret of his strength really the truth? Sort of, but not exactly. Is it really Samson's long hair that makes him strong? Is it Samson's long hair that makes him strong? No, it is not. We need to be careful not to take Samson's words at face value anywhere in the story. Has the text ever said that Samson's hair gives him his strength. No, the source of Samson's strength was the Spirit of the Lord. Not his hair. 
His long hair is a symbol of his devotion to the Lord, a symbol of being set apart for the Lord, of his call to total devotion to God. And so there's some irony here, where his hair is cut off, and yes, he does lose his strength. You know, they say in statistics, correlation doesn't equal causation. The cause is not, it's not as though, oh, there's some magic in his hair, although perhaps that's the way Samson had come to think of it. It's not the loss of his hair, though, that saps his strength. It's the departure of the Spirit of God. Verse 20, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. I said earlier that the fall of Samson, in a sense, prefigures the future history of Israel. What's in store for the covenant people if they, like their judge here, continue to persistently, repeatedly, with a high hand, betray their covenant identity, and their holy calling as God's people, and devote themselves instead to the folly of sin brought about through their entanglements with their pagan neighbors. It's the story of Samson. It's the story of Israel. What happens to Samson here in the future will indeed happen to the whole nation when the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. We also need to bear in mind that this low point of Samson's story is not the end of the story. And neither for Israel is that departure of the glory cloud from the temple in Ezekiel the end of the story. The birth of Ichabod at the beginning of 1 Samuel, that's not the end of that story of the capture of the ark either, right? Uh, we could go into a lot of detail about all of these, but uh, let's just think about Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel 10, the glory cloud departs. The end of Ezekiel, though, Ezekiel 43, and Ezekiel's later vision of the future end time temple representing the restoration of God's people after the exile on the other side of it. What does Ezekiel see in that final future he's looking forward to? He sees the glory of God come back to that new temple, entering it and filling it anew. Samson's story, which for Israel could serve as a picture of what lay in store for them if they followed in his footsteps, that the story of Samson leaves us longing for a presence of God that will not depart from God's people because it has been placed beyond the reach of our sinful failures to put it in jeopardy. And that, I think, is the place for tonight. The story of Samson most points us ahead to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord Jesus himself is in so many ways, so many ways, just the polar opposite of Samson. In the wilderness, you see him resisting the tempter, right? Going toe-to-toe with the devil there, systematically rejecting all of his schemes, all of the ways that the devil so expertly tried to make attractive to Jesus the very kinds of things that would have completely derailed him from his mission. I love in Hebrews chapter 2 when it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus was tempted and he resisted that temptation, all of those uh, desires that the devil tried to spread out before him to avoid the pain of the cross, to short-circuit his mission and not follow through on the humiliation that God the Father had called him to endure, 
Resisting that temptation was painful for the Lord Jesus. It was difficult. It was strenuous. Resisting temptation is a form of suffering. It means we're saying no to things that are promising us all kinds of happiness, all kinds of satisfaction. It is hard. And the more we resist temptation, the more painful it can be. But what Hebrews 2 is teaching is that Jesus experienced that suffering to the ultimate degree possible. I wish I could remember who made this point to me for the first time, but uh, it was so important and impactful the first time somebody pointed this out to me in Hebrews 2, that Jesus experienced that suffering from resisting temptation to the ultimate degree. Why? Because he never gave in to it. He suffered under temptation maximally, and he did that for us, right? He did that so that we who have succumbed to the tempter's voice and Sometimes sometimes we can see so clearly in hindsight, by God's grace, our folly. Sin has ended up bringing us nothing but pain and sorrow. See, Jesus suffered through resisting every temptation he faced so that for us, poor and weak and needy, Samson-like sinners, every one of us, there could be well, we called in Sunday school this morning a way out. A way out. Deliverance. So that we could find in Him forgiveness. Peace with God. So that through Him we could experience not the, the terrible judgment of God's Spirit departing. We could experience the grace of that same Spirit coming with the full redeeming power of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember what David prays in Psalm 51 when he's laboring under the conviction of his folly and wickedness. When he says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that he deserved the same consequence that Samson suffered. Removal of the Spirit of God that had anointed him for kingship. King David also had hope. He had hope that because of the grace of God, that that was not going to be the only option for his future. That God is merciful and gracious with us miserable sinners. And he looks on us with compassion. He looks on us with love. He draws us up. And by his spirit, he cleanses us. and He renews us. He sets us on a new path of obedience and empowers us to walk that road faithfully with renewed commitment to him, loyalty to him, devotion to him, set-apartness to him, so unlike what Samson demonstrates here. You know, we could ask the question, when was that later Ezekiel passage fulfilled? The one where the glory comes back to the temple. Good theologians have argued, good place to look for the fulfillment of that prophecy of Ezekiel is that day that Jesus is brought to be dedicated in the temple. In Luke chapter 3, verse 2, Luke chapter 2. 
Because at that moment, as the Lord Jesus enters the temple, that glory has returned, never to depart. And now, Lord Jesus has ascended into the heavenly temple. From that place, he has poured out his spirit upon us. A spirit he will never revoke. There's all the more reason for us to listen to his voice. Heed his warnings. To be on guard, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Learn the tragedy of the life of Samson. Sin doesn't make sense, people of God. The world out there is not going to tell you that. I'm telling you now. The Word of God is telling us now. It's reorienting us. It's showing us the way the world really is. Hold that before your vision. God's Word is true. It shows us our sin so clearly, but it also shows us the way out. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is almost exhausting to look so closely at Samson's uh, great failure, and even more so when we uh, see such close resemblances in our own hearts and lives. Um, Lord, we're so thankful for the way it shows us by contrast how much different the Lord Jesus is in his obedience and his perfect resistance to temptation. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ you have given to us in a way you will never revoke. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit you would cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and that you would teach us to follow his wisdom, teach us through the power of your Spirit to see clearly the way things really are, not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.